you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Welcome everyone back to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. I'm so happy to be putting out new episodes again and I promised you interesting guests and today is no exception. I have Dr. Rashida Jaju, who is a board certified pediatric dentist and the founder of Smile Wonders in Reston, Virginia. Dr. Raju completed her dental education at Harvard School of Dental Medicine in Boston and has specialty training in pediatric dentist, pediatric dentistry from Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. She has achieved advanced laser proficiency certification from the Academy of Laser Dentistry and breastfeeding specialist certification, which I love. I love that you have that certification. And she has served on the Council of Clinical Affairs for the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry and Examination Committee of the American Board of Pediatric Dentistry. Besides actively serving the profession as a private practitioner, expert laser dentistry provider, educator, speaker, and a published author, Dr. Rashida loves going home to her loving husband, active toddler, and two adorable Maltese doggies. And she is looking forward to traveling all over the world again and has visited every continent except Antarctica. Welcome, Dr. Rashida. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am definitely one of your, you know, routine listeners. Um, And I appreciate all the vast variety of the topics and everything. So I'm very honored to be one of the speakers invited to speak with you today. Thank you. And before we jump into dentist stuff, two things hit me from your um, bio that hit home to me. Number one, the dogs, because I have two very spoiled Shih Tzus who've run my life. And two, the travel, because I have dedicated 2023 is going to be the year that I make traveling a priority. So I love that you've been to so many places. And just off the bat, I mean, I know you're from India, right? Yeah. What's your favorite place to visit other than going back home to India? You know, um, my husband and I usually try to uh, make it so that we're going somewhere for a reason or we have made, um, we know something about it. Mm -hmm. So Europe is one of the you know, go to locations. I feel like if I had to move out of US, I'd probably want to move to Barcelona. Nice. Um, in Africa, of course, mm-hmm. Cape Town mm-hmm. is 
everybody's favorite. Uh-huh. We had a distant relative there. So we actually got like the locals view oh, that's of wonderful. Cape Town when we visited. Yeah. But yeah, I think traveling is going to be a lot of people's goal yep. this year. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> my goal is stress-free. Old- yeah. Stress-free 23. Yes, I love that. And my the only thing, and it's, it's funny that those two concepts, the dogs and the travel, were in the same bio because that's what holds me back. I hate leaving my dogs. I, my, yes. my oldest just turned 15, my oldest dog. And I'm, I worry, you know, and I, I, I talk to her before I leave and I go, please, Miley, please don't die while I'm gone. You know, Aww. hang in there because she's, she's elderly. She's suffering a little bit. Anyway, oh. now. Well, our dogs get to stay with our friends that's or, nice. and we have a very, we're lucky to have a very nice, um, experienced and close dog walker that um you know we leave leave Mm -hmm. her yeah Um, i mean we approach her to take our dogs Mm -hmm. and because the two that i have are siblings oh nice they actually i say siblings but yeah they're litter mates Mm -hmm. and um i know that each of them have very different personalities and in a way they take care of each other right yeah as do mine they're not they're (laughs) not siblings they're five years apart but they do take care of each other take care of each other yeah Anyway, so enough about the dogs, enough about the travel. People are tuned in to us to learn about and hear about tongue tie and tongue tie release. And the topic that I think is important to cover and and that you have expertise on is the optimal timing. And is there optimal timing for release? And how the heck do we know what it is? Oh, you jumped right into my favorite topic. That's great. So, um, Optimal timing of release, and it's you know it's also known as OTR in many um, conversations in like professional world, um, is super important, and I feel like that is actually a little minimized in our um, as our field. We are trying to create awareness mm-hmm. and uh, create the uh, you know people's acceptance of the procedure. We have minimized optimal timing in a way, but I feel like it's time for us as a profession to pay a little bit more attention to it. There are many things that go in determining optimal timing. So many times babies may have visible attachment Mm -hmm. and we all know the anterior tongue tie concept Many times, babies may have a restricted function, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily a visible tie or a visible membrane, Mm -hmm. or it may not be coming all the way to the tip of the tongue. Mm -hmm. Many times, when it is coming to the tip of the tongue, and you know everybody in the hospitals mentioned it, and the pediatricians mentioned it, those are the ones that get, the visible ties are the ones that, you know, sometimes get mis- diagnosed and mm-hmm. treated too early oh, from an I see optimal that timing yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you treat it and expect that all of a sudden the muscles are going to know what to do and coordinate around and all of a sudden it's going to become this great silver bullet answer, that's when you have actually missed the boat in getting the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that's where the optimal timing came about. And from a personal professional experience, I felt like I, especially around COVID timeframe, 18, from 2020 June through September-ish of 2021, 18% of my babies that I was treating were second releases. Yeah. 
somebody else has already treated them. Right. You know, I, I find similarly in my office, I'll have people come to me because they've had tongue tie release and things aren't going well. And for those who don't know and haven't listened before, I'm a lactation consultant. So people are coming to me for breastfeeding problems and I'll get on the intake form something like I've already, my baby already had tongue tie release that didn't help. And I don't know what's going on. And it's been done usually that quote unquote quick snip in the hospital or the pediatrician noticed it and because it was so obvious and sent them to an an ENT, not that I'm belittling, nothing against ENTs, but in my experience in my area, the ENTs aren't doing the same type of procedure as the pediatric dentists are. So we have this um, misguided reference, misguided referral system that thinks they're taking care of something, but nobody has ever even looked at the function. Nobody's saying, exactly. how's it going? Right. And so that's where I call like visual release yeah. versus a functional release, right? right? right. Yeah. So, um, so when I have someone that has been treated already or they have, you know, come in with an expectation, you know, the hardest patients are, I found you on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Because this is a family or this is a this is a baby and mommy that have, do not have the appropriate support mm-hmm. and guidance to establish mom's health, baby's health, function, and then release. They are struggling on their own. They're doing their own research. They are finding, they are trying to figure out the best resource. And they're coming to me, a surgeon, like right, dentist. Right. For a procedure and expecting that to be their answer versus mm-hmm. really realizing that that is a part of the answer. Right. And so, yeah. Can I stop you for a minute? Because you yeah. said something that like is my latest focus, mm-hmm. mom's health, meaning, and that means emotional, mental, and physical health. Because yeah. in this field of tongue tie, there are so many providers who are treating babies who don't have it in their scope to assess the mother. And this is not just an infant problem, right? And how does a family handle what this procedure is and, and what, you know, not as we've said before we came on, it's not that it's such a big procedure, but it's still a procedure. And anytime you hand your child over to someone and say, do this to my baby is traumatic yep. for the family. And then sometimes, you know, the fault, the pre-work that has to be done, the follow-up that has to be done, what the evening is like. We have to make sure part of the optimal timing is making sure the health of that mother, the health of that family yes, is absolutely. considered, right? Yeah. And I have parents that, and, and the thing is, one of the reasons I pay a lot of attention to mom's mental state, because this is a mommy that was looking towards, and regardless of how the delivery went, mm-hmm. looking towards and looking forward to sort of a relief, mm-hmm. right? I want to give her the relief. But anytime you have a procedure, there has to be a relief. And then there has to be the pain of relearning a new thing. Mm-hmm. And the only way our babies communicate with us is by crying. Mm-hmm. And if a mom's state of mind is not 
there to be able to see those cues and communication from crying. And if they have this filter of, is my baby in pain? They both are going to experience the pain without even knowing it. Right. And the stress of that. And the stress Um, of that. And and so if the baseline, if you have a mom who's already anxious, is exhausted, um, is stressed, is recovering from what she may, and I hear more and more, consider a traumatic birth, whether or not medical, the medical society or system thinks it's a traumatic birth, if it was traumatic to her, her baseline and her resilience, resiliency level is different. And this could just be something that puts her over the top. And I don't know if you see this, but what I see typically in those situations where it's done, those are the families that give up easy. Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, I tried and I just can't do anything else. I tried everything. I just can't do anything else. This is all I can do. Yep. And I find that um, if we don't pay attention to the family dynamic, mom or parents' health, and we are trying to have this baby do this beautiful function immediately after, those are the parents that sometimes feel so disappointed and so, um, you know, lost that it stays with them. I routinely have nine, 10 month old babies that have been treated somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And now they want me to provide a second opinion because they're having difficulties with transitioning from bottle to Mm -hmm. table foods or something. Mm -hmm. So they're running into that a little bit. And, the conversation that I try to bring them to is, you know, function issues, what are happening right now and things like that. But they are stuck there. We right. tried it. We did this. Right. We did this. And right. it didn't work. And my baby's still having problems. And then I, it takes a little effort to kind of get them out of that. So to me, if we did it at optimal time, proper preparation, things like that ahead of time, not only would we have helped that baby at that point, but also the lingering issues, the parents are better suited. So, you know, this is a this is a congenital thing that baby is born with. We always hope that we have taken care of it early on enough or well enough that it doesn't have a milestone based kind of, you know, presence of issues at different stages because we've done it, so to speak. But realistically, you were born with something and you had to take care of it, chances are that if that baby, especially if the proper preparation and complete release wasn't done, at that next phase at toddlerhood and as they grow up, it might present itself again. And you may have to do, it may not be another release, but you may have to do some therapeutic interventions. Mm -hmm. But if we would have done it early on, maybe we would have minimized at the back end. Right, right. Maybe things would have been a little smoother as they went through these milestones. so Because we did that. Yeah, so yeah. I can come back to, so mummy factors in optimal timing are definitely important. Mm-hmm. Um, moms that have the goal of exclusively breastfeeding. However, if we are treating the baby sooner than even their milk having come, come in, before they established good lactation support, did they need to introduce pumping in the mix? Mm-hmm. Do they have to work with someone to manage bottle versus breast versus nipple shield versus, mm-hmm. you know, other yes. things? Yes. All of those, um, I feel, I know we say compensatory things, but it's more adaptive mm-hmm. things for parents mm-hmm. that need to make sure that intake is going well. Right, right. Okay. And that there so is milk supply. 
is the milk supplier. Right. So, right? so another um, type of uh, situation that I encounter is the parent that thinks that there's a, t- you know, they think there's a tongue tie issue because the baby's not gaining, but mom's milk either didn't come in or is lacking or she's had a rough start or she had a hemorrhage or all the risk factors for low milk supply. So if we release the tongue tie at that point and there's no milk, the baby's not going to learn to breastfeed efficiently. There's no way. So handling all that and that it's really challenging. And tell me if I'm, I I'm guessing that you have the same challenge of trying (laughs) to have parents understand that there's no way to get this done quickly and have the result that you ultimately want because the ultimate result isn't release of the frenum. The ultimate result is functional feeding. Improving function. Mm-hmm. Right. So yep. it's very difficult. And that's part of the reason why I do this podcast yeah. because I want to get the word out about how, um, yeah, we all want it to be easy. We all wish. And sometimes it is. Are you a solopreneur or small business owner? If so, I want to ask you a question. Do you know exactly how much money you made in your business last month? Or can you find this number right now with just a couple of clicks on your computer? I'm Sarah Finns, finance coach and accountant and creator of Easy Business Bookkeeping, a course and system for tracking your business finances with ease. I want to bust the myth that managing the money in your business needs to be time consuming and stressful, or that you need to be a finance professional in order to understand them. With Easy Business Bookkeeping, you will get the tools and support you need to finally gain clarity with your finances so you can grow your business and your impact. Want to learn more? Go to www.sarahfins.com forward slash TTE podcast for details. That's sarahfins.com forward slash TTE, like tongue tie experts podcast, and I'll see you on the inside. So I, I just think that having um, providers like you come on and discuss that even though you have the, the part that's the quick part, you're not in a hurry to do that quick part in, in this treatment plan because yes. you want to make sure. And what are the kinds of things that you, you um, like, what do you suggest parents do if they suspect they have a tongue tie? Like what? Take so me through the process that's for your practice. Great question. So sometimes I'll have parents that, you know, I've taken care of some of their kids or they um, do, I already have a relationship with and they'll be like, I know my next one. They're pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't even delivered yet. Mm-hmm. I know this one's going to have a tie. And my first answer to them is your first phone call should be your lactation consultant. Beautiful, right. So the lactation consultant will make sure to help you with your health, your ability to help the baby. And then they will also give you some adaptive mechanisms to keep that intake going until I see you. Mm -hmm. And in our office, we actually see babies at two weeks. Mm -hmm. After they've done their two-week pediatrician appointment, Mm -hmm. I find that that is a really good timing Mm -hmm. because they don't have an impending appointment with the pediatrician, especially with all the viruses and everything going around. Mm -hmm. I tell parents, don't have a scheduled visit with a pediatrician for a well child and go in a Petri dish after having had a procedure done. So I feel like in my office, I find between two and six weeks is the best time Mm -hmm. to do it. It gives parents a chance to work towards Mm -hmm. having the right support system, 
if a lactation consultant does a good evaluation mm-hmm. and notices there is a site preference, muscle tension, something else going on, it gives them enough time to get that bodywork piece in there as well. Some babies, I require that they see somebody for bodywork. Some babies, I say it's recommended, right. but you know, it's a wellness right. thing. Nobody's going to say no to bodywork. Right. I don't want to um, make that a part of a requirement before we do a procedure. But here are some resources. So I feel like the first two weeks are mm-hmm. crucial for them. I, I agree so much. And, I, I, you know, I am so respectful of that point of view. Um, I wish that it was more common. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that think that this should be something done in the hospital. And I don't, I, I do not, I almost never think that's the right idea. Let's talk about that. So in the hospital, and, and I meant to bring that up, so I'm glad that you did. I have taught at enough um, hospital locations and in the attendance, I have pediatricians, hospitalists, SLPs, mm-hmm. ENTs, lactation. I think I got all of them in the attendance, right? Oh, and neonatologists. That's actually neonatologists. Mm-hmm. And many times ENTs at the hospital are the ones that are charged with taking care of it at the hospital, right? One of the biggest differences about addressing it in a hospital Mm -hmm. versus in an outpatient setting is the perspective of what is outcomes, okay? In a hospital, especially around birth, people forget that everybody's thought process is revolving around, is this baby healthy enough to be discharged? Okay, so if actually they're offering to do it at the hospital, it is because the baby is not meeting Mm -hmm. discharge criteria. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's grim thought process, but it is infant mortality is still a thing. And that's Mm -hmm. why the protocols of the hospital system are to catch infants that might have difficulty thriving. That's why the NICU, that's why the feeding tubes, that's Mm -hmm. why all of the systems and protocols are there is because they're trying to focus on survivability, okay? If we focus on function and long-term outcomes and all of that, that's where the Mm -hmm. functional evaluation, proper timing, collaborative care, all of that is a quality of life thought process. We have figured out in the modern science society of how to help this baby survive. We just want to make it so that they are able to eat effectively, comfortably, efficiently. Right. And gain weight. That's all, you know, as long as there's weight gain, if there's weight gain, everything's fine. So it's so similar, you know, my background, I'm a midwife, I'm a CNM and it reminds me of the hospital system's thought of, it doesn't matter how the baby comes out, as long as the baby comes out and mom and baby are alive, which is terrible. Like, that's really the bottom line, right? So there are places that do a better job, right? And yes, that's a great goal to go by, but that's not the be all and end all, right? We're not talking about what the experience was like. What's the function like? How do they feel afterwards? What did you have yep. to do? What kind of trauma does mom feel? And um, it's part of the reason why I don't work at the hospital anymore, actually. But um, the 
the similarities to that birth uh, paradigm and to the feeding paradigm aren't lost on me, you know, so that like, what do we have to do right now? So this baby is okay, so he can go home. And it looks like he can't open his mouth and lift his tongue. So if we snip that frenum, and now he can, we, we did our job, all's good. And nobody tell, almost nobody tells mom, unless they've had an excellent lactation experience in the hospital, that you have to follow up with someone because there are other repercussions for this. And maybe it wasn't functioning mm-hmm. yet and you have to learn how to use that tongue now and all yeah. all the things right and that's that's the yeah. that's the difference where i feel like you know some of the advocates in our field are like do it right away help mom with this mm-hmm. and i feel like i i think right, there's not a right or a wrong thought process it's just you have to understand what the thought process philosophically is based on right. if you cannot right. initiate a breastfeeding journey or you have difficulty that the baby is not even able to coordinate a swallow. Instead mm-hmm. of a tube, NG tube or G tube or whatever you have to go through in thought process. Right. Look at that tongue. Right, right. Is that tongue even able to function? Right. And a sphrenectomy. And, and there are, have been babies that I have sent right Right. Away. There have been babies that I'm like, well, this kid can't even open her mouth enough to get on the tip of the right. nipple. There is no feeding going on. Everything else is taken care of. Yes. And when I was at the hospital, I mean, I worked at the hospital for many years. Tongue tie came into my, um, you know, my perception probably the last like three or four years I was there. And if there were two or three, maybe as many as five babies that I actually, and we had a dentist at the hospital that actually did them if need Mm be. And, um, but that was it because I I was never sure that that was actually the problem mm-hmm. until everything else gets settled, yeah. Yeah. right? We don't really know the function. It's not fair to evaluate that baby's function. Yeah. The functional impact of it. Um, many times mm-hmm. I when I talk to parents, I also say it's um, the, the um, frenum or the extra tissue that's there is kind of similar to having webbed fingers. Mm-hmm. There is extra tissue. It should have been gone. It's not pathological, but it is there. So it's not anatomically optimal, right? Anatomically mm-hmm. correct, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But if you just release that tissue, then all of a sudden you don't expect excellent ability to write cursive without any mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's a very layman or outside the mouth way, but it seems like parents understand that. Like you have to Mm -hmm. then evaluate how much some kids who have webbed fingers also have issues with palm gross motor as well as fine motor. Some babies that have the tip of the tie involved completely, you know, ankyloglossia where they say complete ankyloglossia. They're Mm -hmm. not having feeding troubles because mom's supply is really good. And Mm -hmm. mom's, you know, they're writing mom's flow, that the feeding impact is not really that evident still, but they get right. treated right away because it's visible and they don't get treated fully. Right, right. And I, I've seen, yeah, I've seen cases of, you know, visibly it, it looked like the worst tongue, the worst, I hate to, you know, the worst, <laughs> it was the worst tongue tie ever. Um, and the baby was fine. And the baby was had mobility. 
Yeah, but then those babies sometimes, after the tie release, are having a harder time. Right, right. And then you are like, it's because they had figured out a system with mm-hmm. what their muscles were able to do. Mm-hmm. Now we corrected, quote unquote, the anatomy without proper working, right? Mm-hmm. Proper preparation mm-hmm. for the baby and mom. Right, so right. we talked about the maternal side, right? Like optimal timing on maternal preparation where moms need to be at a good place to be able to help mm-hmm. the baby, right? Um, emotionally, physically, if they have had traumatic uh, journeys. But uh, uh, on the baby side, we have to make sure that the baby is able to tolerate and utilize the newfound freedom. Mm-hmm. So say when we're doing, um, you know, I also provide virtual um, consultations where parents are home, they don't have to worry about getting the baby out and come to the office and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. That became a part of our part of our um, treatment during COVID. Mm -hmm. However, or during the height of COVID, I don't want to say COVID is done yet. But you know, Mm -hmm. um, during the height of COVID, like 2020 timeframe, where we were all trying to minimize six feet apart, 15 minutes or less, things like that. We started doing virtual consults to establish optimal timing. Collaborative care is what's going on. Do all the Mm -hmm. things that need to be done ahead of time before you step inside the office. Uh When parents are showing me inside the mouth, if they are not as comfortable even holding the baby, there are plenty of parents that this is the first baby that they've ever picked up, right? Yes. And they've never seen anybody nurse. They've never seen anybody nurse. Right, right. Their hands are shaking, even getting close to the child's mouth. Yes. They can barely put their fingers inside the baby's mouth. It's going to be hard, right? Like to Mm -hmm. be able to show me is difficult enough. How do I expect them? And what am I expecting their experience is going to be while I'm taking care of their baby? Mm -hmm. Right. So getting that baby comfortable with having parents um, hands in their mouth, getting parents comfortable going inside their mouth, doing a little playful activity, kind of connecting with that baby in that oral play kind of sense Mm -hmm. is the other part of Mm -hmm. uh, creating optimal timing and kind of working towards. So I sometimes will tell patients, you have a favorite song. Start using that song. You have a favorite story you want the baby to hear. You know how there is a concept of like, you listen to the things while you're pregnant so that that baby is. It's all all for helping our heart. So get that baby and mom kind of ready that we want to change the environment in their mouth for the better and get them ready for it. So um, that so optimal timing has a lot to do with parental readiness. It has a lot to do with baby readiness. If there are other medical or physical things, meaning, you know, sometimes babies have cardiac concerns, kidney concerns, Mm -hmm. there are other medical things that are also to be considered. And or if the baby's position in utero was so compromised, they have a side preference, they have muscle tension, tightness. Think about what that baby's experience is going to be if their happy place is looking to the right. I'm going to have them see the in the midline while I'm working the whole time with opening their mouth. Mm-hmm. If someone's already helped that, right. their experience, it's, it's a more kinder, right. gentler, thorough release. Right. And their experience right. is better. And my visibility, my access, my ability to do a better 
treatment for them is improved. So baby health and mommy health is something Mm -hmm. to consider in optimal timing. I love that. And, you know, the way I explain it to parents is, and this is very lay terms, but babies are born all curled up. And if we try to do anything on them or expect too much from them before they uncurl a little bit, we're Mm -hmm. not going to get them comfortable. And the body work part of it is something that we have to talk about. And my, you know, forgive me, those of you who are quote unquote body workers who don't like the term who are listening. I know. There's a conversation going on about the term, but to me, it's the only thing that I can, you know, it's someone that works on the function of the body. And I include, you know, depending on who's available, um, osteopaths, chiropractors, occupational therapists, physical therapists, um, those that, you know, who I consider body workers, for lack of a better term. In um, our in our field, we in our area, we also have some really good infant massage specialists, yes. chiropractors yeah, yeah. Um, that are, and, you know, geographically, accessibility-wise, I right. try to pair up the provider that I can trust that they have good expertise when working mm-hmm. with babies and in, in an around oral area. Mm-hmm. Like I think they, they're providers that may be focused on the overall body and health, but not right. as comfortable working in and around the neck. Head right. And face. familiar with infant function and infant familiar function. with tongue tie. So you are right. Yeah. I feel like we mm-hmm. use the term body work as a, as equal to the term release provider, but then, right, you know, right. There right, are different expertises. Right. Yeah. Access. So um, I was at an international conference and at the conference they were saying that the term body work, you know, we're, we're U.S. centric in our speech and the term body work doesn't mean nice things in some countries. Oh. So <laughs> yeah, oh, no. <laughs> whatever. It's so hard. It's so hard mm-hmm. to have the same language in an international field, you know, but we're trying. But yeah. so... The thing that I think is important to, and that I have a challenge for fam- families to understand is that connection and I, of why the baby may need some sort of work to feel comfortable in their body. You know, and one of the things that I, I explain is if you have a stiff neck, you don't feel good. Right. You ever wake up with a stiff neck and you can't, you can't drive because you can't turn both ways or, you know, you have difficulty looking over your shoulder and it, it prevents your movement. So if a baby has a functional uh, restriction in the way they move, how can they be expected to breastfeed efficiently, right? Because right. they, and those are the babies, especially if they have one-sided preference or tightness on, more on one side than the other, which is so common. Um, they will nurse better on one side than the other, mm-hmm. right? Or the the parent will express that there's a preferred side or, you know, a slacker, I hate the term slacker boob, but they blame it on themselves, you know, that it's, that's the side, but typically it's the baby can't get into a nice functional position on the side that's not doing as well. And then it produces less, you know? Um, so the idea of, yeah, we can't require it, but we completely recommend it. And I honestly can say that in my own practice, and I've been doing this for a lot of years, the babies that have have had their um, restrictions other than their mouth addressed prior to procedure and worked on afterwards 
definitely have better success, better results, easier, easier process with the with the whole release itself, yeah. and less reattachment. Right. Right. So, so better experience, yeah. better yes. recovery, yes. and better outcomes if we time the release in coordination with the rest of the body's restriction, right? right. Like tension right. and restriction. Yeah. As yeah. I call it, the team. If the team is working together and communicating, yep. and this is individual, right? I mean, you you talked about a parameter of two weeks to six weeks, but it's not like you have a Every baby must have blah, 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 blah. It, no. it's, it's so individual, right? It is individual. Have I treated babies before two weeks? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Have I um, talked to moms about what usual is and what we are doing for them so that they know that they have a baby that is younger than our you know, the bulk of the babies that we treat. So you are going to have to be extra mindful of if there are in that first two weeks, other things that if your pediatrician is concerned at that two week appointment, because the baby was fussy, you may have to go for multiple visits because the pediatrician wants to see at that time. So try to time and I tell them, try to time your pediatrician appointments in between those times where you're feeding or doing the exercises Mm -hmm. and all that. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think that that is uh, important for parents to know that the recommendations of optimal timing are based on each individual case. Yes, yes. And then um, one of the topics that uh, we we said we would chat about is techniques of treatment and the mm-hmm. different types of tools that are released. And I think you're a good person to speak on this. Um, as we were chatting before we came on, um, most of my own experience is with a certain type of laser. You use a different type of laser. There are people who are very proficient with scissor, but mm. I think more not. But, you know, so, so let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I always say we need to focus on the provider and the provider can focus on what is their best tool. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the qualification of the release provider is what parents know. Do I trust this doctor to take care mm-hmm. of my baby? And then they should trust that that doctor is a master of their domain. Right. When it comes to um, which tools to use, I feel like uh, the layman uh, comparison I make is like it's it's like Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. He loves his wand, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you have done enough to master your tool, you may not feel as proficient with a different tool. If there is a provider mm-hmm. that uses scissors and they know how to use scissors really well, of course, you will have good outcomes. The problem mm-hmm. is there are some limitations of the tool that the provider then has to work around. So mm-hmm. for example... When you have a uh, baby that has an anterior tie that has a membrane well-defined, comes very anteriorly, you are able to separate and you can actually sever from the sides where the scissor can come around and sever and release, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a baby that has a submucosal attachment or a more, uh, you know, webby, what we call posterior type of Mm -hmm. attachment, those are the ones where it becomes a little more difficult to approximate the tissue well enough for use of scissors. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? To approximate to, because scissor comes from the sides and then right. releases versus right. lasers r- release like a pen. They work in a straight line. Where you point it to, in other words. We point for those who the can't laser see, beam yeah, to yeah. the area. And when it comes I, to laser beam. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that what, impresses me with a laser as opposed to scissor and it goes along with what you're saying is it's almost like one cell release at a time exactly right whereas you know like what the difference between taking a bite out of something or peeling something back exactly you know absolutely great example Mm -hmm. great difference now when it comes to lasers too we think of laser and we use the term laser and we can go back to the term body work or the term right, release right. provider, there right. is always differences in each once you start looking at the details of it. So mm-hmm. there are many different types of lasers available, especially in America versus around the world. Mm-hmm. There are many um, tools and different companies that may have mastered the delivery of that laser beam. Mm-hmm. Okay. Versus if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, it's, you know, the UV rays, the visible rays, and the infrared. All the laser beams, all the lasers um, that are available in the market and FDA approved for biology and biologically friendly tissue, all fall under infrared. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they use laser energy to build in. They, um, they may have different levels of heat that build up because it's energy there's going to mm-hmm. be heat. So then one of the most easily available kind of misrepresented of the laser world, mm-hmm. I feel like are the diodes, because mm-hmm. they are more dependent on heat rather right. than the laser beam energy. Right. Okay. Right. So there will be some providers that are, you know, have to learn how to manage that heat buildup. Right. Because if the heat builds up in the tissue, then it's almost similar to an electrocautery, which is not necessarily a laser release. It is more of using a, you know, hot knife or a laser, like a, right. uh, using something that is using heat to kind of, quote unquote, burn off the tissue. Right, right. And that's, you don't like to hear that, right? right. So the provider right. that's using that has to learn how long the laser beam can be or the diode laser can be on the tissue. Also, diode laser works with the contact mode, like you have to touch right. the tissue right. versus other lasers are work in a non-contact mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in I my practice, releases that looked okay. And I've seen others that were upsetting to me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's the matter of how the provider has mastered that tool, right? Like if they allow for thermal relaxation, have they allowed Mm -hmm. for, you know, like a wet gauze, moist gauze to kind of take away some of that heat impact. But that's not the type you use. So the comfort level comes into play. I don't use that. I don't use that in my office. We use what is called a water laser. And the reason it's called a water laser is because with that laser beam, there is an air water mist that also okay. comes from the uh, handpiece itself. Water is okay. considered the medium of delivery of the laser energy. In my experience and in my studies, um, you know, as a part of the Academy of Laser Dentistry, when we do all the, mm-hmm. you know, the didactic part of laser training, it is very clear that there are certain um, energy areas that have 
great okay. compatibility with biological tissue. And so RBM lasers and CO2 lasers are mm -hmm. considered pretty similar in that spectrum. Okay. So the WADA laser is an RBM laser and it works on water and hydroxyapatite tissue. So while diode lasers might be looking for hemoglobin and melanin and things like that, the water laser or the CO2 laser are looking for water content mm -hmm. and um, hydroxyapatite. Okay. The water mm -hmm. laser, because we talked about that heat buildup and things like that, water laser is able to have that air water mist. We have a little small little suction. We can have the gauze there. It kind of protects okay. the surrounding tissue from that heat buildup. Okay. So it cools things down as it's doing it instead of letting the heat stay Exactly. There. Mm -hmm. And so we are able to use the laser from a distance that is a few millimeters away mm -hmm. and build up the laser energy to desensitize, demarcate, and then release the tissue. So if you think mm -hmm. about all that, it's a little slower than the scissors, right? Mm -hmm. However, it's actually preparing that tissue to be gently released. And then the tongue is able to work or the lip is able to work much more effectively. We don't have to worry about local anesthetic and we don't have to worry about the buildup of, um, you know, we have to dose it for babies and mm -hmm. things like that. So we don't have to worry about all that, but it also does coagulation. We don't have that luxury with scissors or scalpel. So coagulation for, for lay people listening means clotting so that there's not too much bleeding. And so, right. you know what, I, I want to bring this back and think of, you know, to address, um, the people who may not be as familiar with all that goes into this and, and are trying to choose a provider for their own experience. Uh -huh. And as I hear you explaining the technicalities and recognize the value of all the education and training that has gone into this, um, I think that that's the most important, the, the more important questions to be asking providers. How long have you been doing this? What kind yep. of training do you have on the laser you do? How many times have you used it, right? Yep. Is this something yep. you do if you need to? You pull out your thing out of the closet or is this your practice that you've dedicated your yep. life to? Because when we use the term preferred provider, which is the internet term, I think that's a misnomer. What we should be saying is the dedicated provider, the experienced mm -hmm. provider. Sometimes they're the same. Mm -hmm. Not always, yeah. though, right? So yeah. someone like yeah. you, I would consider a dedicated provider that I, if you were in my local area, hearing what you're saying and your expertise and the value that you're bringing to the families that come to your practice and the amount, the level of understanding you have of the tool you're using is impressive, so thank you for thank doing you. that. And thank you for being that to the families that you take You have of. to realize that many of us providers have not learned about laser or even infant oral mm -hmm. health as a part of our basic education. Right. That tide is turning and my generation of providers are sort of the ones that are now hoping that we are training the new residents so that the graduating residents don't say the same thing in 20 years, right? So people that have gone through the education, gone through the experience are the ones that are going to be able to 
to help with optimal timing versus, you know, everybody's in their uh, starting of their journey. So all providers start somewhere, but they have to know that I'm starting versus this is my experience and be able to articulate that to the parents. Right. right. right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think we've covered as much as we're going to have time for today. I totally (laughs) enjoyed this conversation and I am confident that my audience will enjoy it and learn from it as well. Um, You know, on a personal note, it was great to see you again. And I hope I get to see you and chat with you soon. And before we sign off, is there anything else? Is there anything that you feel like you want to add or anything that, you know, you want our listeners to hear? I think my only thing that I want people to take away from our conversation today is the importance of team approach, importance of maternal mental health, mm-hmm. importance of a uh, prepared baby and mommy. And then if you've done those things, you would have good guidance to find the right provider for the type of problem that you're having and find a good timing to address it in the best outcomes mm-hmm. can be achieved, mm-hmm. right? So that's the only thing I would say. Don't don't lose sight of the process because you are so expecting that procedure to be the right, answer. Right. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. And I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. I appreciate Bye-bye. it. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed and for ways to follow us on social media. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed listening, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.